0: My name's Sam, um, I'm a trustee here at Sutton Vineyard, I'm also part of the preaching team and today we're going to be continuing our series on Stranger Things. So it's a series looking at um, passages in the Bible that maybe we, we, we've we kind of possibly missed and skipped over and, and, and maybe not just kind of dwelt on because they're, they're, they're seemingly odd or difficult to deal with. Um, and, and we're really diving into those because actually they reveal so much and can be so Um, encouraging when you actually spend time with them, and as Jason said, if you don't spend time on these, you you end up kind of looking at... Thanks, James. Uh, Sometimes the same points over again and missing missing others, and you kind of have a a limited canon. Today, we're going to be looking at a a passage in Exodus, so the second book of the the Bible, and as part of this, we're going to look at a passage that's seemingly quite... Well, first of all, it seems odd. Um, It seems like it's a bit... Out of place, um, and actually, when certainly when I first read it, first few times I read it, it, it seemed to be quite brutal, almost almost describing a, a certainly a god that I don't I don't know. Um, and so we're really going to dive into this, and actually, I've just loved spending time in this passage and it's and it reveals this amazing kind of um direction, this lineage to to the to to the good news the 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 new testament the 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 jesus the gospel um and just this incredible thing that's available to all of us and as part of that, we're going to be um then taking communion together and I just think. It's going to be an awesome Sunday, (laughs) and I'm really pleased to be here. So before we start, I'm just going to pray, so part of the prayer today is from Psalm 145. Lord, we're here today to meet with you, and we welcome your Holy Spirit. You are timeless, you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of this glorious splendor of your majesty and your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works and proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. And today, like all days, we want to know you more. And we give thanks to the fact that we can. Amen. Awesome. Okay, so like I said, we're going to be, we're going to be looking at um, Exodus today, uh, which means that we're going to be looking at, at, at Moses. So as is always the case when you're looking at any passage in the Bible, it's really important to kind of set the t- scene, understand the context at which you're looking at it. And, and that's never more important um, than when we're looking at passages in, in, in the Old Testament. But But before we get into that, uh, we're talking about Moses, and I kind of thought to myself that actually, as, as a known passage story of the book, it's got to be up there, hasn't it? It's got to be up there with, you know, Noah, maybe, maybe Jonah, you know, like, like stories of the Bible that certainly I was brought up with. One of my, one of my children's Bibles, you'd open it up, and there'd, there'd be a few. So I think that we probably know it pretty well, don't we? So as part of that, we're just going to play a quick game to see how well you know your Moseses. If that's a <laughs> no. So if we can flash up the first picture. So the, 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 the key to the game here is to try and say where this Moses is from in popular culture. So anyone, anyone can guess. Simpsons, thank you. And for a bonus point, what number plague is that? Jason? <laughs> number two. Number two. <laughs> Next one. Oh, there! I knew this was going to be a little bit easy. Prince of Egypt. I don't know if it's owned by Disney now or if they're going to buy it out, but I'm sure they'll get their hands on it eventually. So, the Prince of Egypt. How about the next one? This one's for the for the more mature of our congregation. Keep that. Sorry, what was that? Charlton Heston, absolutely, in the Ten Commandments. How long ago was that released? 66 years, 1956, look at that. And then the last one, probably the most important, one that we've all been brought up on, who's that? Yes. Veggie Tails. I think it's Moses the Marrow, but uh, I can never tell. So we know the story of Moses pretty well, don't we? I mean, it's been in popular culture uh, enough. How well do we remember Exodus 4, verses 24? And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, this is Moses, and sought to put him to death. That's a strange one, isn't it? Can't remember that in the Prince of Egypt or or Moses the Marrow. When did Jesus seek to kill Moses and why? And how does this have any bearing on our relationship with Jesus? Jesus. Well, first and foremost, in order to understand this, we need to set the context of, of kind of where we are, as I said. So we're in the second book of the Bible, we're, we're in Exodus, so, so just before we've had the first book of the Bible, seems pretty logical, but we've had Genesis, and, and they, they follow on directly from, from each other, and actually, at the end of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph, again, very popular story, and it's Joseph and uh, the, the, the stage... Stage show, I'm sure people know. It's obviously in the Bible as well. (laughs) Um, And it ends with his brothers coming to Egypt. Remember, he he, he saves them from a famine. He's been promoted to a, a position of power. And at the very end of Genesis, we hear of Joseph's father, Jacob, passing away. And then Joseph himself passes away. But just before he does so, he has a message in Genesis 50, verse 24, and it comes up there. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then it's from there that we immediately go into Exodus. And it starts, there's been a few generations past then. And and the pharaohs have started to look um, unkindly on on the Israelites, and and, and it starts with so much so that the pharaoh commands that actually the the boys of the Israelites will be killed to, to, to cull their numbers. And it's those circumstances that we know, and this is when we do get into the popular culture and the things that we remember of this story, that finds Moses actually in being adopted into the household Pharaoh, he, he's, he's adopted by, by, by Pharaoh's daughter. So it's all these circumstances, then he grows up, and again, if you remember, he, he kills an Egyptian and he flees to Midian. All of that is in Exodus chapters one and two. And then we find ourselves in Exodus three, and it's the moment that Moses is called or commissioned by God. And again, it's the passage that we know so well of the burning bush. And it says in verses two. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And then verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is commanded at this point by God to return to Egypt to free God's people. He's been chosen, and despite his protest, and there's been some incredible... Um, sermons on this moment where Moses is like, not me, send somebody else, it's, it's not me. God's adamant, he says, no, it is you. The elders of Israel will listen to your voice and I, God, will take the Israelites to the chosen land with milk and honey. And then, it's just after this that we read about this seemingly odd passage in Exodus 4. So the verses are going to come up Behind me, um, you'll be able to see them online. So Moses returns to Egypt. So Exodus 4, verse 21 to 25. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And then, straight into 24, this is probably the point at which I possibly stopped reading. At <laughs> a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then, Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. We don't see this bit in the film, do we? This this bit's not in the Prince of Egypt. Why, immediately after God commissions Moses, chooses him, seemingly has this back and forth, to say, no, it is you, does he seek to kill him? What does this tell us about God? What does this mean for an almighty God to seek to kill Moses, or anyone for that matter? And why do we have this strange situation where Zipporah circumcised Gershom, Moses' son, why does that seemingly placate God? And what on earth does this mean for me and you? What, 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 what can we take from, from this? Sorry. What? Oh. Cheers, James. A lot of questions. So first, let's let's start to unpack the why. Why does God seek to kill Moses? And to understand this, we need to to look at the promises that God makes with his people, or or covenants. And there's a number of covenants um, in the Bible today we're going to be looking on, on, on a few. And, and they're effectively promises that God makes with his people, commitments. And a promise from God, well you could go to the bank with that, that's, that's pretty, it's not like I promise I'll go and mow the lawn today or, or, or something like that. This is, this is a solemn commitment. And the first one that we hear about, there's, there's a number in the, in the Bible, we're going to look on a few today. Um, obviously not in the huge amount of detail, otherwise we'd be here for, for a long time, but one of the first that we hear about and that we know about is, is in Noah, isn't it? And it's the one that a lot of us remember, and why do we remember that covenant or that promise? What's it marked with? A rainbow. It's always good, isn't it? Pictures allow learning. <laughs> so you almost want to associate everything in the Bible you want to remember with, with, with a picture. In Genesis 9, verse, verse 8, 9, and then, and then 11, it says, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. It's a promise from God for for, for everyone. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the world. And then later in Genesis, we hear about another covenant that God makes with, at this point, Abraham, soon to become Abraham. And And it occurs, it's discussed over a number of chapters, but we get to Genesis 17, where we get to read this. So verses four to eight. Behold, my covenant is with you, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Promise between God and Abraham that he will give him, i pick out three things here. So offspring more than he can count. So at this point, Abraham hasn't had a child. He, he, he hasn't had Isaac, his son, w- w- with Sarah. He hasn't had Jamal. He, he, so, 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 he has, so, so he gets promised, you're going to have offspring more than you can count. He says, I'll, I'll promise you a land. And he, and he names the land. He says, it's, it's the, the, the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites. And then in Exodus 12, so just before this, but like I said, it's, it's over a number of chapters. It says, and I've really been dwelling on this week, it's just been utterly beautiful. He says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a beautiful passage that is. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so that's, that's, that's Genesis. So is it, is it, I know that we're kind of rushing around a little bit, but everyone kind of following me here. So, so this is the covenant that God has made with Abraham, first book of the Bible. And then we find ourselves with Moses in Exodus, and we have God telling Moses he has come to deliver the Israelites out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land as a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. Moses, his calling is to honour the covenant that God has made with Abraham. It's it's all about this. It's so important to connect these things this this lineage here. But what's the so what? Okay, so, so why does this have anything to do with the passage that we're looking at now? Well, immediately after the passage in Genesis 17 that I've just read, so verses four to eight, we have verses nine to 12. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. who is not of your offspring. So God's made this promise, his covenant with Abraham, that he's going to make him into a great nation, that there's going to be a blessing to, to all of mankind through his generation and, 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 his, and his descendants, and that he will give him this land of, of Canaan, the Canaanites. And all of this is, on a basis of one thing, he turns around and says, Every male at eight days old must be circumcised. And then Moses, in this moment of calling to, 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 for God to uphold his side of this covenant, he has this amazing privilege. You think about Moses' um, upbringing from now, he has had, clearly had God's protection on him. He found himself in the household of Pharaoh. He's being protected despite the fact that uh, the males of, of, of his um, ex- extended population were, were being killed. Um, he kills an Egyptian. He's protected. He, he, he flees and goes to Midian and actually there he finds a wife and, and has a child and he is called by God, gets to stand in the presence of um, the Lord through uh, the, the spirit in the burning bush and he is called and all of this is to fulfill a covenant, and he's been asked to do one thing, and that's ensure the circumcision of his son on the eighth day of his birth. Have you ever had an argument with someone that you're close to, and they've uttered the words, I asked you to do one thing? <laughs> it's an absolute killer, because whenever it's uttered, you know you've lost the argument. Any moral high ground you have, it's like, Ugh, they did ask me to do one thing and I forgot to do it. It's it's always the worst. It's usually, Sarah and I have one of these, and I have to say, it's usually my fault, and I say that truthfully, Sarah's been out and about, flying around, doing all of this stuff, and and it's usually something simple like, can you get dinner out of the freezer so that it defrosts? And usually then, for Sarah to then cook it when she gets home. And she gets in and it's kind of like, ah, oh, do you know that one thing you asked me to do? Yeah. The, the funniest way I've seen this argument go down was when I had the privilege of living with my mum and stepdad, James, when we were in between households. And, and every week my mum worked kind of late shifts and so would, would get in. And the one thing James needed to have done was start cooking dinner. You've never seen someone move faster in your entire life. James James is propped up on the sofa, beer in hand, watching something terrible on TV like SWAT, and then the key starts to go in the door, and all of a sudden, he's not there. He's seemingly in the kitchen, chopping carrots. It's a bad place to be when you've been asked to do one thing. One thing, and and you miss it. Moses, despite all of what we've just read, God's dedication to his people, is traveling with his sons, and through this passage, it's clear that he's messed up the one thing. Because we hear Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet. In everything, in God's steadfast dedication to his side of this promise, protecting Moses and everything that we've run through, to the fact that he has now commissioned Moses to go and deliver his people out of Egypt because of this, to deliver them to the land that he has promised them. And Moses needed to do one thing, and he hasn't. We really are quite dopey, aren't we, (laughs) as a group of people. (laughs) And actually so much of the Christian story is based on this. We needed to do one thing, didn't do it. There's so much to delve into in this passage. There's, there's, there's so much. I can't possibly touch on it today. We have the, the relevance of blood. We have um, firstborns. We have sacrifice. There, 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 is, there is a lot. But there's just a few things that I want to touch on today as we run through So three main points. So the first is, why is God seeking to kill Moses? So we've just delved into the why a little bit. Why is God seeking to kill Moses? Well, the first thing that I think I, I, I felt I needed to recognize, because I really, I, I thought to myself, what did I feel when I read this passage the first few times over the years and then in, in preparation for this? And it's the seemingly nonchalant way that it says that God's seeking to kill Moses. And I thought, maybe there's a reason why a lot of us don't dwell on this and kind of skip over it. And part of that may be because this seems to be quite alien to us for the God that we know. This doesn't seem to be the God we teach our children about in, on Sundays, I'd say in Sunday schools, that always gives me odd connotations, but that is what it is. And it certainly doesn't seem to be the thing, at least in the churches that I've been brought up in, that, that I'm particularly used to. Maybe some of you are. Maybe this was a, a real focus of how you kind of were brought up in the faith, but it seems too harsh. It doesn't seem to align with the good news that I know that we preach and understand, and there's a couple of points to unpack here the first this is absolutely vital and Jason knows the theological word for this and this guy doesn't so you can ask Jason afterwards but it is absolutely vital that we read the old testament through the lens now of jesus and the new testament and it's and it's and it's the correct thing to do we 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 understand where the story has come from because of where the story goes. And we're going to be thinking on that a little bit later. But it's also absolutely vital that we know where the story has come from and the context of where the story is at the time. And it's, and it's something that we read about. If you read Deuteronomy and you don't understand the laws and practices or at least have appreciation for what they were at the time, there is going to be a significant amount that's missed in your reading and understanding of that. And so it's vitally important that we frame this passage not only looking back now through the New Testament, but also where has it come from? And at the very beginning of the Bible, obviously, after creation, we understand a little bit more of why. From the fall from the point at which sin came into us, a wedge was driven between us and the Lord. We are imperfect mortal beings, and God, perfect, powerful, almighty, powerful in his nature, sin is incompatible with the Lord. So much written throughout all of these pages, sin is incompatible with the Lord. And the way that that, and reconciliation needs to happen, and the way that that needs to happen is through the covenants and the promises that God makes with his people through the Bible. We see later on in this story, after this passage, we're not gonna be focusing on it, but in the passage of, of, um, with, with Moses, we, we hear about the law or what people refer to as the old covenant, and it was a way of, of living with, with various kind of sacrifices and, and, and ways to, to, to behave and things to do, that helps, that helps to, to, to marry up and, and, and to, to, to reduce that divide. But it's vitally important that we read these passages in the context of Moses and the covenant he has with the Lord at that time, the fact that sin is incompatible with the Lord, and the fact that his covenant he's broken this covenant. And that's absolutely vital to understand why there is this reaction from the Lord and he seeks to kill him. We're then going to be touching back on that a little bit later, so please just hold that thought. But the other thing I really wanted to to dwell on, on under this point is what does it mean for an almighty God to seek to do something? This Lord spoke the universe into being all-powerful, very omnis that we can use to describe the Lord. How do you seek to do? You either do or you don't. So if Sarah comes home and goes, did you cook dinner? Hmm, I th- sought to cook dinner. <laughs> I tried to cook dinner, unless something pretty drastic goes wrong, but I'm a mortal man. If, if God seeks to do, he does. So what does it mean to seek to do something? Well, it means that even with Moses breaking this covenant, even with Moses being in the, the, the problem that he was in, he had to do one thing and he has missed it. He's forgotten it. He's deliberately not done it, whatever the reason. God shows grace and there is this opportunity for reconciliation. Through the grace of God and the actions of Sapporah, the circumcision of Gershom, Moses' son, the touching of that blood on Moses, he's saved. God is absolutely brilliant at changing plans because of our inability sometimes. We see that written through the pages of the Bible. To make allowances for our complete and utter ability to fall seemingly short. In fact, I think that that's a significant part of Christianity, isn't it? God wanting these plans for us and going, oh, you've fallen short again. <laughs> and again, we get to the good news in a little bit. So rejoice. We will continue to mess up time and time again. And yet God is willing, certainly in this passage, to make allowances for us and gives Moses a second chance. And there's something that we need to do. We'll talk about it in a bit. But even the great Moses, who was asked to do one thing, fails. And God's response is grace. So the second point I want to touch on is just titled, Why is Zipporah? What I mean by that is when we reread this passage, it kind of didn't dawn on me the first couple of times I read it, but it's not Moses who circumcised his son, is it? Seemingly, he's the one that's messed up. He's got the problem. God's about to kill him. Why is it Zipporah, Moses' wife? That does this well. When I worked through this passage, there's there's, there's theological theories of, of why this is, and, and one of the theories is along the lines of Zipporah, who's who's at midnight, a daughter of a midnight priest, um, potentially finds circumcision repulsive, and maybe that's the driver in why they haven't circumcised their son. There's some reasons for this, but fundamentally, it is a theory. We don't know for sure whether or not that's the case. And so, I want to put that to one side, and I want to focus on what we do know. What we do know is it was Zipporah. Why would you wake up in the middle of the night, I'm assuming it's night, why would you wake up in the middle of the night and know, or just randomly circumcise your son? It's not a normal act, is it? (laughs) Or at least, I hope it's not, certainly with a flint. There's a couple of things here that this really shows. The the first point goes back to the point I've just made, grace. There is an opportunity to make amends, and Zipporah seems to have divine discernment in what needs to happen when and why. And I say divine because that isn't something that just dawns on someone. Ah, we forgot to circumcise Gershom. There is a divine discernment that Zipporah has that she knows exactly what needs to be done. She goes about and does it. Point one, again, that points to the grace of the Lord, the fact that he is still very much in this situation. And number two, I've put here, wives are always the best at discernment. (laughs) But obviously that is a joke. But the reason I've called this out is we're so blind to the mistakes that we make ourselves, aren't we? It's not Moses that sorts this out. And I think that that is a brilliant analogy on where we are and seeing our own faults. I know this for a fact. Sarah will be able to point out my faults a lot better than I can point them out. There aren't many. She knows them. I absolutely love this because it points to me for the basis of Christianity going forward, which is that the absolute need for discipleship and other people. This isn't Moses sorting this out, identifying this on his own. It's Zipporah, his wife, who he's traveling with, and it doesn't have to be a wife, a spouse, whoever. This is about living with people, doing this together. And it's through that that we see what we've missed. And I absolutely love that in this passage. And then the last point, and I've said, an apologies if I've said it far too many times, but I've said, oh, keep that thought, hold that, we're gonna get to that in a minute. But it's because I'm actually quite excited this story tells me every time I read it and highlights the absolute need for Jesus. Our need for Christ is absolute. Now, how on earth have I got from circumcisions, old covenant, to the fact that I'm standing up here saying that our need for Christ is absolute? Well, we see it. I said, there is this wedge between us and the Lord, and the New Testament, there's a lot about it, but so much of it is trying to, to reduce that wedge so that we can have this relationship with the Lord. It's what we were made for. It's what we were created for. And we read about it through the old covenants, things to do, ways to live, the law, to get closer to the Lord. And time and time and time again, we read about the fact that we're not that reliable. (laughs) Are we? When there's one thing that God asks Moses to do to keep this covenant, he doesn't do it. It wasn't a lot. We then read about the law and what Moses takes to the people And it's hardly five minutes that they're down the road and they're complaining about things that are going wrong. I love the fact that in the Old Testament, you read Kings, you you read, 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 ugh. You read the Old Testament and you see this continual kind of wheel of things going wrong. And then you get to someone that you think, surely he's the worst. And the passage then goes, this guy came along and he was even worser. It's not even a word. We can't be relied on. This feels like I'm slapping people around a little bit and putting us all down, but it's a fact that we have to face. God can't rely on us. We're not going to be able to break that divide ourselves. We need something else. Our need for Christ is absolute. And so another covenant is needed. And thankfully for us, we get to read about that and the foretelling of that covenant in Jeremiah 31. So from verse 31, the words will come up. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Know, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hallelujah, amen. Jumping up, celebrations. British reserve. I love it. <laughs> What an amazing passage! Our need for this is absolute. It's written throughout all of the pages of the Old Testament. Moses was a pretty good guy. The things that he got to experience are up there. He got to stand. He got to converse directly with God, in a tent of meeting. He got to see God's back. I mean, of all. I mean, it's, it's better than me. He was. One of the best of us. And even he messes up. Our need for this is absolute. And all of this, for me, points to this new covenant. And it's what we get to read about in Matthew. Matthew 26. We're obviously now in the gospel and Jesus is sitting down with his closest, his disciples, at the Last Supper... I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The new covenant arrives. And it's for everybody. And luckily for us, there isn't that much that we need to do. But there is something. We got to listen to Jason preach, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago about the the vine tree and the, the tower. No, not the vine tree. What am I talking about? Fig tree and the tower. That sermon's really stuck with me. I've listened to it a couple of times since. What is it that's demanded of us? What does Jesus tell us to do? If you want, what did Jesus say? If you want God to be acting in your lives, repent. One thing, repent. And I'm not sure about anybody else, but it was amazing not to hear this sermon like a, a stick beating us around the heads, like I've heard it before. And maybe Old, and old Covenant and New Covenant and, and failings. Maybe you felt a little bit bruised this morning, but we stand in this together. It was amazing for repentance to be preached as a privilege and something to celebrate. And it is. We shouldn't lose sight of how privileged we are because of how we're looking back on this. Through Jesus, we can have a relationship with the Father. And that's what this has all been about. And repentance is everything. Repentance is the recognition that your life was bought, bought by Christ. And we are under this new covenant. And through this, using the words that Jeremiah made, God forgives our iniquity and he will remember our sin no more. I've lost sight sometimes of of the privilege of of this and what it's all been about. All so that we can have a relationship with God. God. And we read about the covenant that was Moses was under and the breaking of that and, and this passage that seems odd but then reveals to me so much. And it's worth remembering that it's the good news. It's, the, it's a reason to rejoice. We get to have a relationship with the Father. We're saved. And we get to celebrate that this morning and remember that as we take communion together. So just as I'm kind of summarizing, if we could have the worship team back, I think the worship team are going to lead us into worship and we're going to do communion together and it's a chance to remember that and what we've reflected on this morning. Maybe Maybe you've read this passage before, maybe you haven't, maybe you've thought of the things I've said, maybe you haven't. But it's a clear illustration of how we will fall short time and time again when it's us. And the amazing news is is that we've got this alternative. It doesn't matter. We are saved. We have this available to us. And we can rejoice in that. And we can remember that.